<laughs> okay, thanks, thanks all for, for coming, and uh, we'll hop in. So, so I, I, I want to thank uh, Yadidia for, uh, for hosting the last uh, two weeks. Uh, thank you so much, I really appreciate it. And I'll tell you the truth, I, uh, I, went, I went back and forth in my head whether or not maybe let's, uh, hey, maybe, let's, um, maybe let's cancel the class for two weeks and then we'll start up again. And I remembered a, uh, a, a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, which uh, always sort of like, uh, I don't want to say it troubled me, but I was always sort of confused by it. It talks about uh, different ways of giving tzedakah, different types of personalities of people who give tzedakah. And it says one of the, one of the types of people who give tzedakah is the one who gives, but he doesn't want anyone else to give. And that person has a bad eye. And I thought to myself, who would give and not want anyone else to give? And then I thought to myself, here I am, there's a weekly class on Sunday, and I'm thinking, maybe, you know, if I can't be there, let's just cancel the class. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I'm that guy that they're talking about. So, so for sure, you know, let's just keep the giving going, you know? So, so when I thought about that, so anyway, that's, um, that's an advertisement for thinking about what you learn. And, <laughs> And applying it, hopefully. And, um, and anyway, so this is one of my, uh, favorite, uh, parshas, uh, in, in the whole Torah. Uh, just because, just because it's talking about all the travels that the Jewish people did. And we're ending up, uh, we're finishing up parshas by Midbar, uh, also known as, as the Book of Numbers. And, um, and you know, the next, the next book of the Torah is, is, uh, Sefer Devarim also known as Deuteronomy, and um, that's, that's got a sort of a code name. It's called Mishnah Torah, which means that it's a repetition of the entire Torah. So, so that means in a lot of ways, if that's a repetition of the whole Torah, that the whole Torah is ending, so to speak, right now. So, because what comes next is a repetition of the Torah. So, so these journeys, these journeys, it's really... We're ending the Torah on the subject of journeys. It's sort of the last word in the Torah. You know, the Torah ends with Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people not actually entering into the land of Israel. So here, in other words, we're talking about here at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, which in, in some respects is the end of the Torah. We're not talking about arriving. We're still talking about journeying. And at the end of the Torah itself, we're not talking, we don't, we don't have this sense of closure of the Jewish people actually entering into the land. It's still incomplete. And so I think the Torah, just on a, in, in, uh, on a structural level, if you will, is, is communicating something to us very, very important, which is that you never arrive. You never arrive and it never stops. You know, one of the deepest things I ever heard from a friend is, you know, in the next world, I saw a note, I have a favorite book, it's called 365 Meditations of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, Bringing Heaven Down to Earth. There's a new edition out, and he changed the title of the class uh, the, changed the title of one of the chapters. It, it used to be called, this chapter used to be called The Afterlife. And then he said, he saw, he makes a little footnote, he saw that in one of the Rebbe's talks that the Rebbe changed, said, we don't believe in an afterlife, we believe in a higher life. So the idea being, it just, it, it never stops. It never stops. But, but this word that I heard from my friend was, I think about it all the time, he says, you know, at the end of 120 after we leave, this plane of existence anyway. He says, you'll, you'll get all the answers to all the questions that you have, but you won't be able to do anything about it. He says, right now, he says, you don't know all of the answers, but you can do something about it. Something strong. So it never ends. It never ends. And we always like to say that in Torah and in terms of personal refinement and, and, and the work that a person does to elevate themselves in terms of the, 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 the ladder of Kedusha, that if a person thinks that he's arrived, 
that's the greatest proof that the person hasn't arrived at all. I saw this week a conversation that made a big impression on me. It was in shul after davening. The conversation took place between an old man and, and a young man. Okay? So the old man says to the young man, how are things? And the young man says, he, he shrugs and he says, I'm schlepping. <laughs> and then, this is the part that got me, he says, and when I get to the next stage, I'll schlep some more. <laughs> this is the young man talking to the old man. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's life right there. There it is. Schlepping. You know? And I know in my own life, you know, I'll get to a stage in my life where I've got five crises going on, and somehow I'll get through them, and then give it a couple of hours. <laughs> I've got five new crises. Believe it or not, I've sort of buried the topic for today's talk, but it's objective reality versus subjective reality. I just want to put an advertisement in for the topic of the class. <laughs> before it ends. Our tradition is to announce the topic of the class after the talk is over. That's usually when we realize what we've talked about. But anyway, I am actually driving toward a point here. You know, I want to give you the thought that I want to end the class on now. Because if I don't do it now, I'm going to forget. But um, it's, a, it's a Torah from the Radomsk Rebbe. It's a Farish Shlomo. You know, the power of the tzaddikim, the power of the tzaddikim, it says in the Gemara that the tzaddikim, they're able to do more in the next world for us than they're able to do in this world. I thought that that was a contemporary thought, or that that was one of the things that you wouldn't be able to actually find a source for. It's in Gemara Chulun, that the tzaddikim are able to do more after they leave this world than they're able to do for us in this world. Why should they? And there was a moment in Israel that touched me so much in terms of our relationship with the tzaddikim even after they leave this world. I was in the, the lobby of the hotel that I was staying in and in walks the, uh, the Rosh Yeshiva of an L.A. academy. He walks right into the hotel and we greet each other and he says, I'm in Israel, I just got back from Eastern Europe. And Russia, I said to him, this is all within the first 30 seconds of our meeting. I said to him, did you have a chance to visit any of the grave sites of the tzaddikim while you were there? Then, without, within a second, he reaches into the, uh, his coat jacket, he pulls out a stack of photos, and he starts going through the photos, here's the grave of the Vilna Gone. Here's the grave, and it's one grave site after another after another, and it's him standing in front of the grave sites. This is the house where Reb Elchanan El Wasserman was, was, you know, right before he was killed. And, I mean, but what struck me about this is that most people, you, you meet and you say, they'll, they'll show you pictures of their grandchildren. Here he was showing me the grave sites of people, but he was presenting them to me like they were his, his family. There was nothing morbid about it. Such was the love and the connection. And, and it's like, I don't know if this is in every culture. You have to take a moment to appreciate the fact that this is a little bit of a weird story that I'm telling you. And I can see from the looks on your face a confirmation what I'm saying, because none of you think what I'm saying is weird. <laughs> <laughs> the connection and the love and the intimacy that we have with the tzaddikim, you know, whether in their, they're in this world or whether they're in the next world. The higher life. It, it never stops. It never stops. It never stops. Okay, so we're saying that... We're saying that... that we never arrive on some level. But, but let me rephrase that. You know how I would say that? I wouldn't say that we never arrive. I would say that we're always there. 
much deeper, much deeper. We're always there because we're in the presence of God. You know, it was a very reassuring thought. Reb Shlomo used to say it a lot, and it's, it's older than Reb Shlomo. But the notion that if you want to evaluate where you are personally, you have to look at where your thoughts are. Where your thoughts are is where you are. And you know, it might be that you don't even know olive bays. But if in your mind, you're like yearning for the only one, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know, you're holding at the level of a tzaddik at that moment. You absolutely are. doesn't matter what you're dressed like, what you look like. You are where your thoughts are. So with that in mind, I want to tell you this story from the Radamsk Rebbe. It's at the end of this week's Parsha. So like we were saying, it's on some level, on some level it's at the end of the Torah. And it's talking about the cities, it's talking about the cities of refuge. So it happened to be that, let's see, let me give you the classic example right now. A person is going into the woods and he's going to cut down a tree and he's got an axe. And as far as he knows, to the best of his knowledge, the axe is in pretty good shape. And he swings the axe back and the axe handle flies off and it kills someone by accident. So it's very important that this person wasn't amazed, meaning to say he didn't, he wasn't conscious that he was wearing, was using a faulty tool. He thought the tool was okay, but he killed someone by accident. So what happened was the Torah Hashem sets up what we call these cities of refuge around, around Israel where you could run and you would be, you would be safe if someone was going to chase you, because a, a relative of the deceased could chase you and kill you theoretically, or bring you to the base din, and then they would try the case. But as long as you were in the city of refuge, you were safe. You had to be there until the Kohen Gadol died. And then, and then you were okay. If the Kohen Gadol died, then you were free, and you know, your, your, your sentence was over, and the, the, the relatives of the family couldn't get you. By the way, a very interesting thing comes out from that. Because you would think that on some level, for those people who were, you know, on some, on some level they were safe in the cities of refuge, but, you know, if you want to look at it another way, they were trapped in the cities of refuge. So on some level, the greatest thing that could happen was if the Kohen Gadol died, if the high priest died. So as a result, you should know, since when is the determinations made for the Book of Life, and Rosh Hashanah. So Erev Rosh Hashanah, the mother of the high priest, was so afraid that all these people would be praying for the death of her son, that she would go to all the cities of refuge and bring them presents and gifts. So, so what does the Radomska Rebbe see? So, so listen, let's get a little bit more detailed and then you're going to see something beautiful. So there were six main cities of refuge and then there were 42 Levitical cities. The Levium had their own cities and you could run to one of the cities of the Levium as well and that also functioned as a city of refuge. So, so you had six, six main cities and then 42. And that's where you were safe. Alright, so now look at this. The Radomsker, in his holiness, in his, in his, in his insight, Notice the following. The words of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Six words. Paralleling the six cities of refuge. And then, the next paragraph. V'yahavta es Hashem Elokecha, v'chol avavcha, v'chol nefshecha, v'chol meodecha. should love Hashem with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Right? That paragraph, 42 words. So in other words, in other words, Hashem is a city of refuge. Hashem is a city of refuge and He's available wherever you are. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, or maybe it was one of the, in one of the transcripts, he said, you know, the question is, not how much do you love someone when you love them. The question is, how much do you love someone when you can't stand them? 
That's the actual test of a relationship. Because when things are good, you know, things are good. You know, <laughs> The question is, how much are you attached to them when things aren't so good? That's the real acid test of a relationship. So this notion that Hashem is a city of refuge and that He's constantly there and that you're always there, that's an awesome thing. That's an awesome thing. So with these words of introduction, I want to proceed to this notion of objective reality versus subjective reality. And I'd like to begin with this story. It's an embarrassing story, but it's about me, so I feel like I can tell it. So I was at the office a couple of weeks ago. Hashem is a city of refuge. And he's, he's there. Remember, it's, it's not a question that we never arrive. The thing is that we're always there. And where are we? We're in the presence of Hashem. And not just standing before Hashem, but being protected by Hashem. We're in His city of refuge wherever we go. Let's put it on the combo plan. So, so, listen, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that uh, he didn't have in mind. Believe me. So, so I was at I was at the office a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the assistant to the uh, the showrunner over there walks in in the middle after, of the afternoon with a cake with candles on it, and she walks into the writing room where the writers are, and she announces, "Happy, happy, no reason for cake day." <laughs> And I thought to myself, that's interesting. And then she goes into the other room and the writers start talking amongst themselves and it turns out no one wants any cake. And then I can see into the next room where she's cutting the cake. I see she's cutting the cake and eating the cake. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's a nice thought, but what's really going on here? She wanted some cake. <laughs> so under the guise of being very spontaneous and, you know, whatever, she bought herself an ice cream cake <laughs> using company funds. And she announced, she announces happy no reason for cake day. And I'm thinking to myself, what a chutzpah. You know? <laughs> So then, I don't say anything. In fact, no one wanted any cake. It, was, it happened to be a kosher cake. I, I made sure to eat a piece of cake because I, I didn't want her to be embarrassed, you know? Whatever it is. She didn't want to be from the So, later on, toward the end of the day, it was a, usually we knock off around 6, 6.30, whatever it is, around 5 p.m., one of the writers stands up and says, you know something? My family made dinner reservations for me for no reason. And I have to leave a little bit early. So he stands up and he walks out. So I'm thinking to myself, this is a little bit weird. Happy no reason for cake day. My family made a reservation for me for dinner for no reason. So I kind of put two and two together. And I ask the, the room, I said, is it his birthday? And they said, yeah, it's his birthday. And then all of a sudden I begin to rethink what, you know, my, my take on what had gone on earlier. And, I, and, and they said, you know, he's, he's self-conscious about the fact that he's, it's his birthday. So I realized she came in and she was actually being enormously sensitive and considerate. And here I'm thinking she found a way to bring him a cake without embarrassing him, without putting the focus on him. And I'm thinking, she's a thief. (laughs) 
She's in her, she's a hazard. She's she's found some way to sneak in some cake. You know? It's it's completely the opposite. My 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 take on reality at that point was so ridiculously off and flawed and wrong. Alright, so now I want to develop this theme some more. Remember, what's the what's the theme here? Objective reality versus subjective reality. So there you have an example of my take on what was going on in the world was a very negative, low understanding of what the actual truth was. Okay, so now I want to tell a story. I, I, I wouldn't remember this except my father, who's here, and I love you to pieces, told me, and it's one of my favorite uh, stories of growing up, so many of you may be familiar with this, which is that there's a custom in Washington, D.C. that when, you, um, when the President of the United States signs a bill into law, he gives away the pen that he signs it with. So it, ha- it happened that my father got one of these pens that uh, President uh, Nixon signed the bill into law with. And um, so we're, we're sitting around, I guess I was about 10 years old at the time. I guess that makes my brother 15 and my sister about 12. And we're sitting around the kitchen table and my father is showing us this pen and says, President Nixon used this pen to sign a bill into law. And my brother says, the man's a crook, who wants it? <laughs> right? My sister says, how do we know he really used that pen? I said, he's going to get impeached. That's going to be worth a lot of money. (laughs) Okay, so here you have, here you have three completely different takes on a pen. Right? Three completely different takes. Again, objective reality versus subjective reality. I heard Rabbi Green from Birkat Satara say, 99% of life is in your head. Right? And he usually adds on that the most important piece of real estate in the world is between your ears. Okay. So from this we can see, I think, that how we perceive what goes on is not always in accordance with what is actually going on. And that more than that, we determine to a large extent how we are going to go through life. We get to choose our attitude. I'll tell you one of my favorite, all-time favorite stories. So the Baal Shem Tov, Rick, I know you've heard this at least a dozen times. The Baal Shem Tov was walking with one of his students. You know, back, back in the day, they didn't have plumbing like we have it now. So you had, there was a whole industry, it was a whole profession called water carriers. So, so if you've ever picked up a bucket of water, you know it's, it's, not, it's, it's very heavy. And to carry buckets of water back and forth all day, this is a very serious job. Very taxing. So, so the Baal Shem Tov sees an older man and he has like a, a wooden pole on his back and on each side of the pole he has a heavy bucket of water. And he's schlepping. This is what he does. He's going back and forth from the source of the water to wherever he's delivering it. So the Baal Shem Tov tells his student, come, come with me. So he goes up to the man and he says, says, how are you doing? And the man says back to him, angry. Says, how am I doing? I'm carrying, I'm 70 years old, and I'm carrying two heavy buckets of water. How do you think I'm doing? So, sometime later, the Baal Shem Tov is with the same student, and they see the same man. 
with two heavy buckets of water and they go up to the man and the Baal Shem Tov says, how are you doing? Now he's happy. He says, how am I doing? I'm 70 years old and I'm carrying two heavy buckets of water? How do you think I'm doing? <laughs> the exact same words. The exact same words. His circumstances didn't change one iota, but the way he felt about his life was 100% different. The reality is, there's certain things in our life that are mazel. There's certain things that are like that are that they're, they're mazel. You know, you should know in Gemara Shabbos, I think it's 156b, something like this. There's a whole discussion about mazel. Jews like to quote this 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 phrase, which is in the Gemara right there, that by the Jewish people there's no mazel. Well, let's figure out what the Gemara says over there, okay? There are two opinions. One is there's no mazel by the Jewish people. The other opinion is that there is mazel. The person who says there is no mazel, if you look at his word, says there is mazel. But a person can change it through good deeds and through prayer. That means that both opinions, the opinion that there is no mazel, also says that there's mazel. He's just open to the idea that a person can change it. And that's how we hope. But how we feel about our lives, that's up to us. That's up to us. We get to choose. You know, we're starting this program today for a bunch of weeks. It's going to be like a serious haul. And I thought to myself today, you know what? I'm making a conscious decision to have a good time. I make a conscious decision to have a good time. I think everyone should make a conscious decision to enjoy life. You know, because cause it, won't, it won't all of a sudden come to you. In other words, you look at some people who are enjoying life, and you say to yourself, you know what, when am I going to start enjoying life? Well, I would ask you back, well, when are you going to start enjoying life? You know what? The phone isn't going to ring, or a letter isn't going to arrive, or an email is not going to arrive, and all of a sudden, it's sort of like, this is what I've been waiting for! Finally! I get to enjoy life! I got the password! It, it doesn't happen like that. A person has to make a conscious decision to start enjoying life. And they have to acquire the tools to do it. And it's all, it's all attitudinal. Anything that relies on an outside substance, whether it's drugs or liquor or career accomplishments or another person or a material possession, is never going to make it. it they're never going to make it. Remember what it says in Perkei Avos. Who's the rich person? A person who's happy with what he has. That's such a radical, revolutionary definition of wealth. Because no dollar amount is being given. That means, according to that, a person can literally have nothing in the bank and be rich. You know, I've said it before, but we're sort of on the topic, so I want to say it one more time. And I really want to make a campaign about this because it's a, it's a very subtle thing. But look, you got to start somewhere, right? So maybe we can start here. There's a phrase that people use when they describe rich people, which I think is so toxic that it really it makes me jump out of my skin. It goes something like this. Do you know how much that guy is worth? That guy is worth uh, $100 million. What? How about that guy has $100 million? Or that person has assets totaling 
a hundred million dollars. But that person is worth a dollar sum? You're telling me and you're communicating to me in a subtle way? You're reinforcing the worst aspects of American culture right there. And what does a person mean? A person doesn't mean any harm when they say it. No one's trying to promote a capitalistic, nihilistic agenda with that phrase. But they're being duped into promoting a very alien theology at that moment. So please, 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 be aware that you don't use that phrase, and if someone else uses it, pass on the word. Pass on the word. You know, who knows? Okay. So, objective reality versus subjective reality. Okay, so we can see in a number of different ways we get to choose on some level what kind of life we're leaving. So that's subjective reality. So what's objective reality? Because that's what we want, right? If I give you, like, a plate of steak, and steak's your favorite food in the world, right? But you insist that it's snails, it doesn't really help. So we got to figure out what is the objective reality first so that we can acclimate our brains in terms of understanding what it is. So let me tell you one of my favorite stories. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. Uh, from the, it's from the Vorka Rebbe. So the Vorka Rebbe was the best friend of the Kutzka Rebbe. And uh, he's also known as the Silent Rebbe. And Rabbi Yudin Steinsoltz is uh, he's a direct descendant of the Vorka Rebbe. It's one of the great, great Hasidic masters. A part of the school of Pshisk. So the story goes like this. The Vorka Rebbe was visiting a, a man and while he's sitting in the man's home, there's a knock at the door and someone else comes in and says, Aha! He says, The Rebbe is here. You owe me money. And you're going to have to pay me the money because you're not going to be able to avoid the debt in front of the Rebbe. And the Rebbe says to the man that he was visiting, is it true? Do you owe him money? And the man says, it's true, but I haven't got the money. So the Vorka Rebbe says to the man, bring the money that you have in the house. So I don't know what the exact amounts were, but let's just say that the man had five coins and he owes a hundred coins. So, the Vorka Rebbe says, put the money on the table. So he puts the five coins on the table. And the Vorka Rebbe starts counting. One, two, three, four, five. Then he goes back to the same coins. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then he goes back to the same coins. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. He counts to a hundred. Then, the Rebbe takes the coins in his hand and he goes to the man who's owed the money and he says, will you accept this as payment for the debt? And the man says, yes. And the Vorka Rebbe blessed him with wealth and the man became very, very, very rich. It's a true story. True story. So Reb Shlomo said... On this story, after he told this story, he said the following. He says, this is how Hashem is with us. He says, Hashem counts the mitzvahs that we've done over and over and over again. So let me put that in another way. Because we're talking about what is objective reality. This is objective reality. That means that Hashem is incapable of looking at any of us without seeing every good thing that we've ever done in, in, our, in, our, in our entire lives. And He's looking at us every single moment. So every single moment, Hashem is seeing every good thing we've ever done in, in, our, in our entire lives. So this is an aspect of what it means to be in Hashem's city of refuge. And this is the ultimate reality. 
So the question is, if Hashem, the one, the only one, is looking at us like this, how can we look at ourselves any differently? You want to look at yourself as a shlemiel? What's the point? Hashem is looking at you in the deepest, most beautiful way. And guess what? His opinion counts more than our opinion. <laughs> so if he's thinking good thoughts about us, it's the ultimate in uselessness. <laughs> if you've already won, what are you demanding a recount for? <laughs> you never arrive. Bernie, I refer you to the beginning of the talk. <laughs> No, no. The ground rule is, the ground rule is you never stop. You never stop. A yid never stops. Trying, trying. Remember, you want the, the definition of a righteous person. So if you go up to ten people in the street and say, give me the definition of a righteous person, nine out of ten will tell you, a truly righteous person a truly righteous person is someone who doesn't make a mistake. So, what about Shlomo Melech, King Solomon's definition of a righteous person? He says a righteous person is someone who falls down seven times and gets back up. So, seven stands for this world. The world was created in seven days. Seven is this world. That means that the definition of a righteous person is a person who doesn't stop falling down, but doesn't stop getting back up that the defining characteristic of righteousness is rededicating yourself to getting it right. The Chos of Lublin, the Seer of Lublin, one of the greatest tzaddikim in the history of the world. Each day, he would begin the day with the following words. Today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Every single day, today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Okay, but I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. So we're talking about, we're talking about objective reality. So right now we're in the middle of the three weeks. And we're, more, we're mourning the base of Migdash. So, how could it be? How could it be that we're still mourning the base of Migdash? So, many of you are familiar with this notion that Hashem gives us a special blessing, which is the gift of forgetfulness, which is that if there are very sad, tragic things that happen in our lives, like the loss of a loved one, at a certain point, forgetfulness kicks in, and we don't remember it so much. It happens by women too. We're giving birth. If a woman really remembered the moment of giving birth, I don't know how many people there would be in the world. <laughs> but somehow they forget. <laughs> That's good for us men. <laughs> Can you imagine if they never forgotten? Like the dinner conversation every night might be much... No, you don't really... No, I, I don't know if I've successfully communicated to you how... Painful it was. <laughs> so, so, so God gives us this gift of forgetfulness. So when a loved one leaves the world, forgetfulness kicks in. But what happens if the loved one never leaves the world? So we have the famous example of Yaakov Avinu and Yosef, his son, who is missing, who he never stopped mourning. And how could it be that forgetfulness never kicked in? Because Yosef was still alive. How could it be that we've never stopped mourning the base of Migdash? Because the third base of Migdash is here. But we don't have the eyes to see it. And I heard Reb Shlomo say that when Mashiach comes, we'll see that the third base of Migdash was always here. 
that we didn't have the eyes to see it though. But now I want to go even deeper than that. I heard from Rabbi Aaron in the name of the Kabbalists that when the ultimate tikkun, the ultimate rectification of the world takes place, we're going to see that we never left Gan Eden. We never left the Garden of Eden. That this is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate in reality. Objective reality. So wait a second. I thought it was Sunday morning on Pico and that I was a failure. <laughs> You're telling me that God is viewing me with the utmost love in the presence of the third base of Migdash in the Garden of Eden? I guess that's what I'm saying. So that's pretty good. <laughs> Objective reality is an acquired taste. <laughs> you gotta, you know... I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. Because this is a little bit maybe hard to integrate right away. So let's just take a step backwards and, and work on it a little bit. So, happens to be that probably the earliest science that we got great at as a, as, as a human race is astronomy. Because astronomy is pretty basic, you know, you got the stars in the sky and, you know, they, they noticed after a while that there was a certain rotation to the, to the patterns of the stars and, and all the rest and they started mapping them out and they started figuring out things. So we became pretty good astronomers pretty early in our, uh, in our, in our, in our history. One of the most basic things is that the sun revolves around the earth, right? Well, that's what we thought, that the sun revolves around the earth. But now we see that the earth revolves around the sun. So in other words, one of the earliest, most basic seeming facts turns out not to be the case. Which means what? which means that God deliberately constructed the world in a counterintuitive way. What's most obvious isn't truest. God created the world in a really interesting way that we have to be able to see past the superficial levels. This is what I mean by objective reality, ultimate truth, one has to reach an understanding of what it is. But that's on purpose. That's on purpose. So I just want to wrap it up. And just, maybe we'll end just with a brocha. As Reb Shlomo would say, I bless you and you should bless me back. That, you know, Let's just sidestep all the pettiness. Because who needs it? And let's just stop expending effort. And like all the... This person didn't give me enough of a smile or didn't say hello respectfully enough. Ah, he means to insult me. You know, let's just let it go. Let's just let it all go. You know, someone came up to one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, one of the Talmudim in one of the Lubavitcher Shivas, you know, many, many years ago, and says, you know, every single person, wherever I go, this person is, is insulting me and that person is insulting me. And the Rebbe said back to him, that's because your ego is all over the place. So wherever someone steps, they're stepping on your ego. So maybe we can just like, become a little bit smaller and to dare 
to dare to say things are good and to maybe take that source of truth and to share it with someone else. Okay, guys, have a good week. Thanks for coming. Amen. Amen. You and your family. One, two, three. To be shvat poim Pesach lag ba'omer Shavuos tisha ba'otu be'av Chodesh elum rosh hashanah Yom Kippur Sukkah simchas Torah Chanukah To be shvat poim Pesach lag ba'omer ZANG <laughs> I'll say it again because I somehow the log bomb I never fit in. That's kind of good. All right, one more time. Take a little more time. Like a little more time. We've got to have time to show some. Slow down on the Pesach. On Pesach, last time, slow down. Just yeah, on that one. Just because you know, so many things to show now. On Pesach, okay. And then try at the very end to just zip through them. Same oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the last one. Okay, okay. So that's fine. You give me the pace. The first part is that on purpose. Which first part? No, 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 the lower part. Uh, the no, part. No, no, no. You just keep going around on the high part. Um, all right, so this time we'll go, we'll, we'll go after. I'll repeat the chorus twice, meaning the high part twice. Yep. Then I'll go back to the slow part. We'll start going faster. Okay. All right, you'll give me the p- the pace. Okay, so we'll start out slow. Oh, right, two, yes, three. Take three. One, two, three. Rosh Hashanah Yom. Tishabav and Tubav are two opposites. You're sad and then you're, you're in love. Okay. Tishabav Tubav. Okay. <laughs> All right. Again, take take three. One, two, three. Rosh <laughs>